On this week's OIS podcast, we chat with Jay Duker, ophthalmologist-in-chief at New England Eye Center and ophthalmology chairman at Tufts University School of Medicine to capture his perspective on the evolution of our industry, exciting developments in retina, and his work as a senior executive at iPoint Pharmaceuticals. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the OIS Retina podcast. This is Faras Rahal again. Uh, I'm a partner at Retina Vitreous Associates Medical Group here in Los Angeles as a full-time uh, vitreoretinal surgeon. And I'm a partner at Excite Ventures, a small venture capital firm that invests in, in the ophthalmology space. And I'm delighted today to have as my guest, Jay Duker. Uh, anyone who's in our business knows who Jay is, but uh, by brief introduction, Jay is uh, the chairman of the Department of Ophthalmology at Tufts, and Jay is currently taking on a new position. He has others, which I'm going to ask him about in a moment. Chief Strategic Scientific Officer at iPoint, which is, of course, the company that's brought two commercial products uh, to the market recently, one of great importance to us in the post-year segment called Utique, which we'll talk about a little bit, and they also have some important post-year segment pipeline products that uh, Jay and I will talk about. Uh, a little bit later. But initially, Jay, uh, first welcome and thank you for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Russ. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and really specifically your career path and all the things you've done. And, and we don't have 10 hours. You, you've done a lot that maybe have led you to this point in your career where you're wearing so many hats and this particular hat of uh, iPoint uh, uh, strategic scientific officer. Sure. So I, I've been a practicing retina specialist for 30 years. Uh, I did my training in Philadelphia at Wills, and my wife is from the Boston area. So when it came time to look for a job, I didn't have a lot of choices. Uh, so I actually uh, joined a private practice in Boston, uh, Retina Associates, uh, Dr. Scapins' practice, and I was in private practice for a year and a half. And what I hadn't realized when I joined the practice is that there was a civil war going on in the practice, and it was breaking up. And a lot of times in life, you look back and just say, right place, right time, you know, and I got a little lucky. I, there was an opening at Tufts. They were starting a, a revamping of their department, and I got recruited over to be the, the uh, head of retina there. And I was the head of the retina service for 10 years. At the time, uh, Dr. Poliofito was the chairman, and we developed things like OCT, uh, which I was uh, very fortunate to be involved in the research. Uh, along with uh, assistance with things like photodynamic therapy and intravitreal steroids. We were the first to do that for diabetic macular edema. And uh, Carmen left to go to Bascom 20 years ago, and I became chairman 20 years ago. Uh, and I really enjoyed the job and continue to enjoy the job because I'm, I'm a kind of hands-on organizational person. And I, you know, one of the messages I would say to, to people out there of, you know, how do you get from point A to point B in your career is just continue to do things that you like to do, the things that give you joy and try to get away from the things that don't. And I, again, was fortunate and able to do that. And down through the years, like many of our colleagues, I consulted for various companies, uh, and assisted them with some of their plans in, in developing drugs. And about five years ago, I uh, was introduced to a company uh, and was asked to be on their board. It was actually a company that was developing a dry eye drug called 11Bio. And they were 
interested in getting into the retina space and they never made it into the retina space, but I stayed on the board. Uh, they failed in phase three and did a reverse merger with another company that was developing a bladder cancer drug. So here I was on the board of a bladder cancer company. I'm actually now chairman of the board of the bladder cancer company, and hopefully we'll have an FDA approved product next year. Uh, in the meantime, a couple colleagues and I started our own uh, biotech company 10 years ago, Himera Bio, which is a gene therapy company that's developing uh, drugs uh, for dry macular degeneration. And I also started a reading center with Nadia Wahid and Elias Rochelle that was actually became a for-profit spin out from Tufts. And one of the things I've been lucky is Tufts Medical Center has been very open to entrepreneurial activities. And they've allowed us to do things like that within parameters. And so it's been a great place uh, to do that. In fact, I'm proud to say that uh, two of my colleagues from Tufts Medical Center Department of Ophthalmology have become uh, CMOs at biotech companies and one became a CEO of a biotech company. So there's a little bit of a tradition of that where I work. Uh, down through the years, again, I've had research interests in drug delivery to the eye and uh, and imaging, as I said, OCT. And about four years ago, I joined the board of a company called Civita, which was used to be controlled delivery systems. And for those of you who are old enough to remember, uh, Civita controlled delivery systems was the company that developed the uh, Gantt-Cycler implant. And I had put many of those in many years ago during the AIDS crisis and uh, had a lot of experience with that drug delivery. And the company at the time was changing. It was really much more a PhD-oriented uh, company. And Paul Ashton was the founder, who's really a brilliant guy. But Paul was interested in the next product. He wasn't so interested in commercializing products himself. And uh, one of the things that came out of that uh, was the Alamera uh, spinoff in, in that uh, Alamera's drug uh, was licensed from control delivery systems, Civita, and it's uh, based on the same technology, the Duracert technology that the company has worked on for 20 years. So I was on the board of that company. They got a new CEO. Uh, she became very interested in the board, became very interested in directing the company to be more commercial. And uh, the commercial efforts were, first of all, to develop the Utique implant, which you had mentioned, which was developed internally for uveitis. And it's a very similar uh, implant to the Alluvian implant that we use for DME. Uh, obviously, it's manufactured in a different place, but it's based on the same technology, same uh, type of drug release. And they also in-licensed uh, a drug from Icon, uh, which is now called Dexiq. And those... Uh, products were both launched in the same year within a couple months of each other. And for those of you who know anything about commercial launches, launching one product is a lot. Launching two products within six months of each other for a small company was a tremendous achievement. And overall, I think things went, went pretty well. Uh, Nancy Lurker is the CEO of iPoint. They changed their name to iPoint a couple years ago. And Nancy and I uh, had been really working on some strategic things over the last year. And finally, just a, you know, several months ago, she said, Jay, you know, why don't we formalize this? Why don't you become, I'll create a position where you just help us with our pipeline and our strategy. And as a result, I was no longer, it could be an independent board member. So I, I'm off the board now and I have a part-time job uh, with iPoint uh, helping them with pipeline and strategy. At the same time, I'm still chairman of Tufts. I still see patients a day and a half a week. I don't, you know, I'm not as clinically active as I was many years ago. I've got seven great colleagues in the retina service who are very happy to do the, the, the retinal detachments now. And so I do a lot of tumors and happy to do puckers and holes, and, but I'm not operating nearly as much as I used to. And again, we, we still have a, a very robust imaging uh, research 
that I'm involved with. But but I think the, the message is, is I don't, I'm not sure that if you'd asked me 20 or 30 years ago, oh, are you going to end up doing all this stuff outside your regular job? I would have said, sure, I'm really interested in that. But that's the way it flowed. And uh, there are certain things organizationally I think I'm good at, and I'm able to really think about products from the development phase all the way to what the label's going to look like and how much can the company charge for it and you can really make money doing this. Those are the things as clinicians and scientists we don't always think about. So you can have a really great idea and it can uh, be really look great in the laboratory. But if a company actually can't commercialize it, it's, it's probably going nowhere. So you have to really think deeply about how best to design the trials in order to get a label in order to be commercially successful. And, and that's kind of the bridge between some of the research that we do as clinicians and, and what the companies are more interested in. That's a, that's a very complex career that you're running right now. I, Not I guess. Getting here. So I left out a few things too. Uh, so I, I actually was acting chairman of dermatology at Tufts Medical Center a couple years back. Yeah, they, 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 the, the chair of dermatology left. They were down to two clinicians and they said, hey, Jay, you know, you run an outpatient department. You do pretty well at this. You can run dermatology. So I did. Did it for almost two years. Uh, it's probably actually in my career one of the things I'm most proud of since the. You have to learn the, how to diagnose the dysplasia. I know nothing about dermatology. <laughs> I just know how to run a clinic. You know, you, you, it's the same. You know, it's the right. same idea. You you put yourself in the patient's shoes. What would you want as a patient? And that's what you try to deliver. Uh, and so that really led me to 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 to. to to realize at this point that I could probably balance multiple things in my life. Uh, and, well, you know, of course I've got a, you know, a terrific spouse at home, Julie, who has been very supportive and, you know, has to be uh, understanding. that's the only way I'm you can do these kind of you things. You get a lot of calls and you have to do a lot of things all the time. And this right. is great. How, what, what proportion of time do you think you're going to, uh, if you can quantitate it, dedicate it, dedicate to this new position with I So, so I, I think in the end, I mean, or as we evolve, it'll be a couple, just a couple hours a week. Okay. Uh, but, but a lot of it, frankly, is things I really like to do. I like to know what's going on with the pipeline. I, you know, we're developing at iPoint EYP 1901, which is really what I was brought in to help do, which is a long-acting anti-VEGF. So I'm always interested in, in the pipeline and what other companies are doing and their probability of success and how they're doing it and how they design the trials. So you know, being up on that to me is not work. I yeah. like doing that. It's part uh, of and, what you do anyway, as yeah, a department chairman, as a exactly, doctor, exactly, interested observer. So right now, though, I've been doing it just for a little more than a month. I had a lot of Zoom meetings to meet all the employees, and that uh, we're, uh, you know, doing a, a non-deal roadshow, which means we're talking to a lot of potential investors and analysts about EYP 1901 to introduce them. So it's been busy the last month, but I think once that's settled in and once we start our trial, it's on my position is going to move from helping design the phase one onto the phase two and thinking about building the pipeline. Because one of the things iPoint does really well is deliver drugs to the posterior segment. They're really yeah. good at that. The Duracert implants, you know, there's only five sustained release implants that are approved in the posterior segment and iPoint's technologies in four of them. And the idea of putting an anti-VEGF in this form of, uh, you know, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor or TKI into the Duracert implant, uh, Paul Ashton thought of that years ago. 
and started to develop it years ago, but it never really got off the ground for various reasons. And, you know, this is difficult. You, you know, uh, the, look, at, look at a company like Genentech. They've been working on sustained release anti-VEGF really since they got their first FDA approval. And they're a really smart company with a lot of, you know, well-funded researchers. And they still don't have it FDA approved. Yeah. Uh, so this is not easy. And uh, the uh, idea of de-risking a program by using a delivery system that's already been FDA approved really appealed to me. Also, the TKI that we're using uh, was formerly known as X82 by Tyrogenex. And you may be aware that Tyrogenex did uh, two trials, a phase one and a phase two as, as an oral delivery. And so that did show some promise as anti-VEGF delivered orally, but it was too toxic. But the nice part about that is also de-risk because the FDA knows the product. They, they've seen their IND before. So we're taking an FDA-approved delivery system with a, a TKI that the FDA has seen through phase two. And so ultimately, you know, I think that that really helps de-risk our program, despite the fact that we're behind many of our competitors. So this product, since we're on it, let's let's yep. let's hear more. Sure. This product was the oral product that was yes. tested in clinical trials. Verolinib. Some... Yeah. The Verolinib is the name of the TKI. Yes. We were in that. We were in that yeah. trial actually. Yep. Group and uh, there were some systemic uh, manifestations Work. that were untoward, yep. and I, I understood that. What are you guys doing with it now? And maybe in the course of explaining that. You can tell us about DuraCert itself. What's sure. the basis of the technology? How does it work here? And how does it how has it been successful thus far? So so starting with Verolinib or any TKI, you know, the, the VEGF receptors, all three of them are are in that TKI family, uh, TK family, the tyrosine kinase. And so uh, the idea of using a TKI as an anti-VEGF has been around for a long time. Uh, TKIs are, are commonly used in, in cancer, and, and you may be aware that Graybug has a TKI Sutin, which is very similar to Verolinib. In fact, Sutin and Verolinib were developed by the same protein chemist. Uh, and uh, their uh, idea, again, is to deliver a high enough dose of the TKI into the posterior segment that you can uh, bind to the receptor and shut the receptor down, as opposed to binding the excess VEGF that's floating around in the eye, which is what we do with our injections now. Uh, there have been attempts at doing TKIs topically, uh, the most recent being Panoptica, uh, which uh, has been into phase two with a topical TKI, and they were able to deliver enough TKI to the posterior segment to show some anti-VEGF activity. But again, they had problems with their formulation, and the dose that was getting into the cornea was really probably too high, uh, and they had some corneal toxicity. So the idea behind delivering the TKI directly into the vitreous, you know, we've been doing that for many years, but uh, it bypasses the corneal toxicity, hopefully, and certainly bypasses the systemic toxicity because the amount of drug we put in is a fraction of the, of a daily, of the daily dose that was given orally. So uh, tyrogenic... Uh, yes, the idea, the idea again is, is to be both long acting and the other thing we're looking to develop is consistency. So I've said all along, we always talk about, oh, the injection burden. Yeah. It's not the injection burden. It's the visit burden. If we, we don't mind doing injections, you've got a patient sitting in your chair. Would you rather inject them and be sure that they're going to get an anti-VEGF or say, hey, you know, maybe we'll skip this month, come back next month. Maybe we'll skip. So that what, you, what we all should be looking for in sustained release is not just effectiveness early, 
but consistency. If I've got a sustained release product that in some patients wears out in three months and some patients it wears out in nine months, I'm not sure how that useful that is to me. Because if I know it might wear off in three months, I got to start seeing the patient in three months. It hasn't worn off. I see him in four months. Then I see him in five months. And all of a sudden I'm saying, well, why am I not just injecting this patient if they're coming in every month? So it's the visit burden, not the injection burden. I totally so, agree. I'm glad you used that term. I think yeah. we should use it more often. The visit burden is the rate limiting factor. Right. Son or daughter taking work off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, it's not a big deal. Yeah. And, and so, and maybe home OCT will help. Maybe. Uh, we'll see how that pans out. I, I think the devices are, will work, and I think they're, they're, the technology will be there. It's a question of who's going to pay for it. And the problem yeah, I still have with the home OCT is, remember, many people, my colleagues, will stand up at meetings and say, hey, we're under-treating. Look at the statistics. You know, and, and we, you know, Usha Chattavardi just published a paper where she looked at uh, results of multiple studies where there was sawtooth OCT findings and found that the patients who had the sawtooth OCT findings didn't do quite as well as the ones who stayed dry. But the idea behind homo CT is, well, we're going to let you develop fluid again and then come in and get a shot. Well, that's probably in the long term not optimal. So while I think it will work, it would be better to have a very consistent four-month, six-month, eight-month device that we can repeat and just say to people, hey, you know, you're going to be good. We'll give you a shot and, and come back in four months and we'll see how you're doing and probably give you another one. Uh, I think that type of device would be helpful. And, and I can recall, I go back to the Gantzleichler implant uh, where I put in literally hundreds of them in. And in CMV retinitis, if you put in a Gantzleifer implant and it started to work in two or three weeks, none of them failed before six months. They all work for a minimum of six months. So I could tell that patient, unless you're having a problem, you don't have to come back for six months. And if you come back six months, then we'll put a new one in or I'll just watch you till it reactivates. That's the kind of consistency we should be looking for in, the, in all the slow release devices. And there's, as you know, quite a few out there that are being developed. So when you, uh, but, when you get to this one, the DuraCert technologies yep. is the goal again. We, yep. we know about its success with small molecule, and maybe you can speak to that a little yeah. bit. Is so, this also a small molecule or a large molecule? It's small. And, okay. and so that the thing about DuraCert is that the, the, the molecule has to be relatively small and relatively soluble and has to be able to be mixed with the plastic so that the drug and the plastic are in a sense annealed together and the plastic does go away, it's PVA, and that the original technology both in the steroid implant and the Gantzleifer implant was it was covered uh, by a polyamide tube. And the polyamide is non, uh, uh, the, the, the drug doesn't, it's non-porous, the drug won't go through it. And so the opening in the tube was what determined the release rate. So, for example, like a utique, it's a long cylinder of polyamide with a drug core, and at each end, there's little silicone plugs, and that's where the drug comes out of. So, you can change the release rate by making the opening bigger or smaller. With the DuraCert technology that is biodegradable, which is what we're putting in EYP1901, there's no polyamide tube. You just have the drug core. So it dissolves faster, which frankly is what we want. I don't think any of us want an anti-VEGF that lasts three years. 
especially if it's not consistent. Just like, you know, you can look at the DME market and say, you know, there's, you know, lots of reasons why we don't turn to steroids more for DME. But I think a lot of our reactions at the beginning when the the, uh, three-year implant came out for DME is that's just too long. We're worried that if we put one in and the patient doesn't come back, you know, is there going to be a problem? So I think if you talk to retina specialists about steroids and about anti-VEGFs, there's a sweet spot that's, I think, between four to six months and eight to 12. That's the responses you always get. And right now, you know, we can have patients, plenty of patients can go out three months with our current drugs, but inconsistently. One patient can go three months, the next patient can't go more than five weeks. We need consistency. So in the beginning of treatment, it, it, I totally agree. It, it relegates us to the lowest common denominator. You mm-hmm. have to see the person at that low end until you're sure, sure. that they're right. one who can make it three months. So again, visit right. burden until you have sort of a low end that's really secure. Four yeah. months, six months. Six exactly. months would be the sweet spot to me. A lot yeah. of people are talking about four because that may become at least the initial reality. Great. Consistency is absolutely the key here if you know, but if you don't know and you like have 70% make it mm-hmm. that long, then you're still seeing them every month right. or two and you haven't really helped your cause. And, and you got another problem too when, when we start to talk about other drugs in the space, like for gene therapy, for example. You know, there's no reason that gene therapy will not work as a drug delivery system. The problems again is I think there's going to be an inconsistency in response and that some eyes will never need another injection and some eyes will, and you don't know who that is ahead of time. And that also brings up a problem for payers, which is if I'm going to pay, I don't know, $100,000 for gene therapy, but this patient's still going to need monthly or bi-monthly anti-VEGF injections, I'm not paying for that. Now, granted, the companies probably can figure out some type of outcomes analysis to determine that, but that's not obvious to me that that will be uh, you know, doable right off the bat. So, uh, you know, I, again, there's a lot of stuff in the pipeline that's really exciting. And it's hard to really look at it now and say, this is going to work, this is not going to work. I, I think there's going to be several alternatives in five or 10 years that will offer different profiles, different costs, and you might vary it depending on the patient. And frankly, if they work through different mechanisms of action, you may mix mechanisms of action. And going back to the Utique implant for a second, which is a kind of a microdose, slow-release steroid implant last three years for uveitis. The great part about it is there's no problem layering on other uveitis drugs on top of it. If you want to give methotrexate or Celsept, you've got, if you've got a patient who breaks through, no, it looks like about 60% will not break through. But if 40% do, that's okay because combo therapy in, in chronic uveitis is fine. And you've got that steroid on board, which because it's microdose has a surprisingly low level of side effects. Uh, you know, the intraocular pressure rise in the phase three UT trials was in the vicinity of one to 2% significant. So much lower. Alamera exactly the way, you know, with the alluvian. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly the way you just described. Right. I'm giving it to some people. It's still not the majority of my patients, but it's a substantial minority of patients who've been getting this. And then I basically um, augment their therapy with spot anti-VEGF right. therapy. And they got this sort of low-level baseline steroid. It's really a nice combination. It is. And, and that especially people who you can't get off of monthly or every six weeks anti-VEGF or diabetics. 
Because the difference again is, I don't know if you agree, but for me, if a diabetic gets a little bit of fluid again for a couple of weeks, I don't see that doing long-term damage. So I don't mind saying, okay, we'll give you a steroid and we'll give you an anti-VEGF and especially the Sudafake. And, you know, it, if you want, you get kind of a rhythm to it and they seem to last the short acting one last four or five months and see the patient back. You got a little CME or they notice it. You just do it again. You know, I, get, I think wet AMD is a little bit different. I'd, I'd prefer them not to reoccur if I can avoid it. I totally agree. The diabetic, and that's a large part of my t- patient population, uh, the diabetic macular edema patients, their vision tolerates a little bit of fluid yep. pretty well. And um, I'm managing them more conservatively. The wet AMDs, I agree. Uh, yeah. Even though I manage several, a, a significant proportion as conservatively, but it's based on lifestyle and social mm-hmm. issues, not based on my knowledge yeah. of what's going to happen. But, but, but you know, that's one thing that I've learned in 30 years of practice too, is you, 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 I don't, at least in my patient population, you, you got to balance those. You can't be dictatorial. You can't do one size fits all, or your patients aren't going to be happy and you're not going to be happy. You need buy-in from the patients and the family. And then if it doesn't go the way you want it to go, you all agreed. Of, of the approach. So I, I, this is why maybe for the first time, I don't know, at least the most prominent time that I recall that we have all the clinical dra- trial data to show that monthly works better than PRN and, and extending them out can be problematic. Yet we all do it 98% of the time because those other factors are really important to the right. Right. And, and now many of us have 10 years and 12 year results of treat and extending to a fixed interval, which is really what we do. We don't, yeah, yeah we treat and extend a fixed interval. Most of the time we just stick with that fixed interval for forever, but a two month interval or a seven week interval. And we've been doing that for 10 years in the vision's 2030. Yeah. And you think I've given them half as many injections as I would have if I had stuck to the label. Yeah. So, you know, that's not science, that's anecdote, uh, but, but that's the it way works. I think most, it does for the majority of people it does, and it's individualizing therapy based on those other aspects, the fellow eye, the patient expectations, their social situation, their family, all those things go into it. I and it can change. You know, I can recall patients who I was treating monthly because they wanted it, and, and then, you know, one woman in particular, her daughter got breast cancer. And she said, I can't come in monthly anymore. I need to take care of my daughter. So we treat and extend her out to three months. And unfortunately, her daughter eventually passed away and she started coming back more frequently because that's what she was comfortable with. So, you know, that's life. And that's, again, the, 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 the tragedy and the beauty of what we do. Yeah. Let's, let's, uh, let's take that and run with it. You, you know as much or more than anyone about these other potential products from other companies yeah. coming about what, what's your what's your view of the landscape so therapy or regenerative or other yeah. carrier molecules uh, so yeah so I'll, I'll kind of say that you know in general we have you know uh, similar molecules to what we have now you know brolicizumab was FDA approved and, and that it doesn't look like it unless they figure out what was causing the inflammation. That's that's going to get a lot of market share. But that was, you know, just again, like we all believe ILEA was just a little step up from Lucentis. It was just another step up. Maybe more patients could go three months, but it wasn't really extended release and you didn't have the consistency. Abicapar, you know, didn't make it. 
I don't know what the future is for that. Allergan got bought by AbbVie, and, and so it's unclear where that drug is going. We have Convercept, which is the Chinese drug. It was approved in China that has been studied now through two phase three trials in the United States. And it, I, I don't know the results. I would guess it's going to be like ILEA. Uh, and then we have Frisimab, which looks, it's a combo by Genentech, which looks like it's going to be perhaps superior to Lucentis in diabetes and perhaps about the same in macular degeneration. But I think that's going to likely get approved. The safety looks good and it was non-inferior. I don't see any reason. But those are all kind of in the, that same category. There's a couple others in the pipeline. Uh, Opthea's got a drug that, that blocks all the, 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 the forms of VEGF. Uh, they did a combo trial. And of course, when you do a combo trial in phase two, you know, for phase three, you do a combo trial, you, you got to show superiority of visual acuity. So I'm not sure they're going to be able to do that. So then you have the uh, gene therapies, which I mentioned already. There's two big companies out there, Regenex Bio, which is doing subretinal. And they've shown some, you know, pretty good dose response in their phase one and, and really good safety. But of course, they had like nine of the best surgeons in the United States operating. Uh, you know, my contention is for wet AMD, subretinal surgery is not going to make it through phase three. Because when you look at it and you say, well, okay, you got to do two trials, you know, maybe you'll get away with 300 patients. you got to have how many centers to do those trials? A hundred? Yeah, 80. How many of those surgeons have ever done subretinal surgery? And even in the best of hands, you do a simple vitrectomy, it's a 1% rate of complications. So I don't know. I don't think safety is going to do it. And, and they, I think, may agree because now they've got the clear side applicator and they're looking at doing uh, supercoroidal and that may work. Uh, ultimately, though, I think there's no reason not to do intravitreal, which is what is being done by, you know, the company that formerly was known as Avalanche that started out as uh, doing subretinal and now they're doing it. Yeah, yeah. it, it, it when they were avalanche, it was still subretinal. Yeah, and they were saying the same thing that, that Regenix was saying, oh, it'll never work intravitreal. Oh, wait a second, it's actually working. You know, and they've got some pretty good results. Uh, you know, they, I think they picked a vector that they could get IP on and it was a vector that uh, got into the retina better, but it's also a vector that causes inflammation and they're dealing with that now. And that may or may not be a long-term issue for them. But I said already, gene therapy will work as drug delivery. I'm not sure that WetAMD is the best application, but we'll find out. So we talked about iPoint EYP1901, which is the Duracert implant erodible with Verolinib, which is a TKI. Uh, we're just finishing our IND enabling studies, and uh, we hope to send the IND into the FDA uh, later this year. And uh, we have uh, lined up some sites already to be, you know, the phase one sites. And we hope to dose the first patient in the first quarter of two, uh, 2021. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's dose escalation and we'll be watching them carefully with OCT and it's going to be uh, uh, only patients who have been previously treated and, and we'll see how it goes. In that space though, I mentioned Graybug, they've got Sutin and they've got a different delivery system. And while I think their results look good, you know, if you look at their three month results, they had a 90% rate of no rescue in their phase one. Six months, it was about 70%, but they had problems with migration of the drug into the anterior chamber. And I'm not sure that they've solved that yet. And if they have, then I think that they're on to phase three. Uh, Ocular Therapeutics also has a TKI. They're using axitinib, which is off patent, so anybody can use it. And they have their uh, masters in hydrogel. You know, they've got the uh, the hydrogel implants that they put into the, blocker, uh, 
device yes. in the tear duct. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, and so they're putting in the posterior segment. They've done a phase one trial, eight patients, Australia, and it looked like 50% responded pretty well. So they're developing along those same lines. RPO, uh, they're known for uh, rock inhibitors for glaucoma, but they're also now getting into the posterior segment. They're going to do a six-month delivery of steroids using their uh, print technology. And they're also uh, looking at uh, 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 TKI, I believe, for, for wet AMD. Uh, and then you have ClearSide. ClearSide's also doing the same thing. They just got an IND using their supercortical applicator and exitinib. So the idea of using a TKI for anti-VEGF is not unique. Uh, what is unique is these delivery systems, remember most of them, at least for the time, will be zero order kinetics. And so if you've got a certain drug level in the eye and it stays steady for months, you can probably damp down the receptor uh, and, 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 and not have it act in, in the negative ways that we're seeing. But we're gonna find out. And then the other a big one is Kodiak. Uh, you know, Kodiak uh, has, uh, did a very large phase one where they had uh, multiple different indications and they want to jump right to phase three with multiple indications. They have this very large molecule. And, you know, if you really look at their wet AMD results, I'm not sure it's quite as good as like what Graybug reported. They only have about a 50% non-rescue rate at six months. And if you look at their OCT data, which they just reported at, at the Retina Society, uh, newly diagnosed they only reduce their OCTs by about 80 microns. And, you know, it depends who you enrolled. But if you look both studies, it's about 120 microns for the newly diagnosed. So, you know, again, we'll see. It's promising. And, and they've got a lot of capital and they're very well backed. And they're a bunch of smart people. And, and, and you know, that may, that may work. I think I'm anxious to see how this drug delivery does with multiple injections over time. Because I don't know if it's biodegradable or not. Uh, but that's, again, that's going to be in phase three. We're going to, you know, it's going to be a couple of years before we see results, but that's something to look for as well. Extended duration seems to fall into these court of broad. Yes. You've covered a lot of them. Let me just review for our listeners for a minute, because I want your take from the 20,000 foot view. We have longer acting drugs themselves. Mm -hmm. We have carrier molecule concepts. Uh, we have surgery and we have, you know, implantable devices. And we have uh, gene therapy or regenerative medicine yep. concepts. Those are sort of four different broad camps of how to lengthen the durability of some of our highly effective treatments. Do you view any one or two of those as more advantageous, more realistic, more near term? How, how do you yeah. view how do you So, so I think problem? in general, intravitreal delivery is, is the way to go. It's... Okay. It's simple, safe. We do it right in the office. Patients, you know, when you, whenever you read a perspective of a company that's trying to do it differently, they all say the same thing. Oh, these interventional shots, the patients hate them and they're so painful and they don't want to come in. Yeah. No, it's just, it's just not true. They may not want to come in, but it isn't because it's uncomfortable. So a 30 gauge needle in a TB syringe is a really good drug delivery system. Yeah. It just is. So, uh, you know, I think part of the problem, and, and I'm not a, a protein chemist, I think it's very hard to keep a protein at 98.6 degrees for an extended period of time without it breaking down. I think that's the ultimate problem and that you can wrap it in some sort of material that may help, but I think it's going to lose its potency and that the problem again with small molecules can be off target effects like the TKIs, but they can be put into different matrices and have them last a long period of time. And that's why 
uh, iPoint and other companies are looking at TKIs just for that reason, small molecules that can be put into hydrogels or other type of material that will biodegrade. So I would say in general, you know, if I were handicapping, look for the intravitreal injections because it's simpler and we're, they're easy to do and you don't have this other layer of complication on top. Because remember, when those companies do a phase three trial, they need a control group. Wet MD control group right now, it's ILE every other month. Yeah, how, high how, bar. It's a high bar. It's a high bar. You could, but but a high bar for safety. Yeah, those Lucentis, Ilea, they're extraordinarily safe drugs. We are so lucky that yeah. that of the safety profile there, uh, and so that's a high bar for safety. So we didn't really talk about the implantable, the 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 uh, Genentech's. And, and again, the, the initial results in the phase two and the phase three of, of efficacy or non-inferiority of, of vision. And I was actually a little surprised because I, I wasn't going to you know, go, I was going to go on a limb and say, I wouldn't be surprised if it was superior because you were delivering a constant level That's of anti-VEGF. And, yeah. But if it was superior, I think we would have heard, but it's not inferior. I've been worried all along about the safety. And, and this, again, goes back to the Gantzcycler implants. When we put a Gantzcycler implant in across the sclera and the conge broke down over the implant, all those patients got endophthalmitis. I yeah. learned early, you have to take them out. And otherwise, they're going to get infected. And I'm worried that as you do multiple injections and break down the conge over these, the endophthalmitis rate will be high. And in fact, it was 1.8% in the phase two and it was 1.5% in the phase three. And so if I you know, go to your, one of your friends and say, hey, I got this new procedure and it's much more convenient for your patients and it really is good visual results, but it carries a 1.5% rate of endophthalmitis. Yeah, not happening. No, I don't think it, when you spin it that way, many of us will be anxious. But I do think it, it still may get FDA approved. It, it may, despite that. It wouldn't surprise me if the FDA says that's just too high a rate. But, and I think people will use it. But I don't think it's what we're looking for. I don't think everybody is going to say, yeah, let's, I, let's give it to me and, and let's go. I think it will be for select cases. So the market is still open. That's kind of my point is that nobody's figured this out yet. This is a really hard thing to do. There's a lot of companies have tried. A lot of smart people have taken stabs at it. But I like our chances at iPoint because of, as I said already, we've got a proven delivery system and we've got a TKI that's been through phase two. The irony of what you said uh, is not lost on me. And let me uh, paraphrase it for you in a minute. The, we, we inject people with 30 and 32 gauge needles all day long and we have a lot of companies and product developers saying exactly what you just said, which is, oh, the patients hate this. It's torture. We got to find a way to do it differently. And a lot of people, you know, we're trying to develop sort of topical therapy. You mentioned one earlier. Great. Not, nothing wrong with that. Yet, ironically, I've been pitched many times as an investor, not as a retina doctor, from the glaucoma people. Exactly. Who say, oh, drops are terrible. Yeah. We yeah. need to find it. 50% don't take them. Exactly. Exactly. So, so, so that's where the, your experience as a clinician and your grounding in reality will make you stop and say, I, I, that doesn't make sense to me. It yeah. just doesn't make sense to me. So, are well tolerated. So they are well tolerated. And, you know, again, I go back, I, you know, I, I sound like an old man. I guess I am because, you know, back when, before we had the Gantcycler implant, we were injecting Gantcycler and Fuscarnate into the eye in patients, and I was doing it weekly. Yeah. I had patients come in every week for a shot for years because they yeah. didn't want to go on IV. 
I worked with Mark Heinemann in those days. He published yeah. some of that yep. early work. Uh, yep. doing every other week when they stabilized. Right. And, and so, so monthly or every six weeks seems like nothing. Yeah, totally. Totally. You know, I, I want to go back on one historical point that is unique to you. <clears throat> I didn't have a chance to ask you earlier. Uh, this is a, Utique is a steroid product, and we're talking about intraocular steroids. I haven't forgotten that actually you were the first person that I'm aware of to describe the intravitreal triamcinolone. It has tremendous effect. We were all blown away by the wow factor. We talked about it. Everyone's talked about it. Out of interest, and I have my own personal feelings about this, most of this stuff turns out to be kind of happenstance and what's the concentration yeah. readily available. Did you come up with the four milligrams because it happened to be what's in one yes. tenth? So I'll tell you the whole story. Yeah. And this is one of those things where things came together. So Adam Martinez, uh, I know Adam. you may know. Yeah, Adam was, the first author. Adam was the first author on the paper. And so Adam was our fellow. And he had trained in Indianapolis. And one of his mentors there had, tr had trained in Australia where they believed uh, AMD was an inflammatory disease. And they gave subtenons steroids and eventually intravitreal steroids for it. And actually, Moshe Lahav, who was the head of retina at the Boston VA and was at Tufts when I first arrived, he believed it as well. And he gave his wet AMD patients subtenon steroids. So Adam comes to Boston. He's our fellow. We have a patient that, uh, you know, has got edema and has AMD. And Adam says to Carmen, oh, we should give him steroids. And Carmen's like, okay. And so they gave him trimcinolone. And the patient comes back on a month later. And the vision wasn't any different. And the fluorescein looked the same. But the OCT showed that the intraretinal fluid went away. And yeah. so we had OCT. No one else did. This was back in 2000. And so because of that, we said, wow, this works on intraretinal fluid. It didn't work in wet AMD. So that day, there was a patient with birdshot in the office with CME. We gave him trimcinolone. So Adam says to me, you know, Jay, I, I think this will work for diabetes. And I'm like, Adam, this might work for diabetes. Diabetes is an inflammatory disease. But let's try it. So we did. And it worked. So it was really it was really Adam who 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 pushed it. He was the first author on the paper, and he dragged us along. And and you know again here we are still you know years later still delivering steroids. And if it weren't for the anti vegfs coming out, I think steroids would be absolutely frontline treatment because they certainly work and they they have longevity. It's their side effects under, that none of us like. We're underusing um, steroids in diabetic retinopathy. I don't know. Uh, you know. There's a certain stigma I, I, with steroids, but they do work in my hands. The edema yeah, is Yeah, it, it, it does work. And, and I really like combo for uh, patients with macular edema that I just can't get rid of. I've got some diabetics now who I've been injecting for years and years and years monthly, and they're sick of seeing me. I'm sick of seeing them. And so I offer them, especially if they're pseudophagic, give them an Osrodex, give them an anti-VEGF, and that will consistently for me work for four to five months. So you do two injections every four to five months as opposed to five injections every five, you know, and, and, and I don't do it on everybody. Some people, when you hear about high pressure and cataract, they just say, just give me the anti-VEGF. But I think there is more of a role. And, and I do think that we, uh, that idea of the microdose of steroids gives you another area of safety. I think, again, 
both the Alluvian and the Utique have a much lower incidence of intraocular pressure rise than does Osredex. The, the, it's, you're not delivering as much drug. And so you really wanted the eye to be under probably better control. But like you said already, there's no problem if somebody breaks through. And so instead of giving them monthly injections, you're giving them you know, every three to four months. Uh, that's preferable. There it is from the guy who first uh, put the steroid in the eye. Although now I, when I see Adam, which I was, I'm going to credit him. That's great yeah. information. And, and again, we, we weren't the first. We were the yeah. first to document that it worked because yeah, we, had you know, a, we, we had OCT. Jay, this has been wonderful. I, we could talk for hours. You, yeah. you, you're, you're like a bucket of information here. It's really fun. I really want to uh, thank you for coming on and sharing with us both your personal experiences and this great uh, vast area of professional knowledge and experience that, that you have. Thank you very much. For My coming. pleasure. It's been fun. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening in to our conversation with Dr. Duker. We hope you found it as engaging, informative, and inspiring as we did. To keep up with all the innovation happening in ophthalmology, visit Ophthalmology Innovation Source at OIS.net or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Until next week.